If we haven't met before, I'm Ashley, and I'm the senior pastor here. And we're in a series today called Roots, all about, come on, yeah. It's about living a deeply formed life of rhythms and relationships rooted in the ways of Jesus. And we've had a great morning so far. Oh my goodness. I love the worship today. I love God's presence. I love Kelly's baptism. We're so proud of you, Kelly. Congratulations. It's amazing. If you haven't been baptized yet, but you've trusted in Jesus, we would love to help you take that next step, just like she did. You can sign up at the info desk. Man, God is so good. Well, today we're talking about family. That's the title, family, really simple here. In my teens and my 20s, I remember being like, I will never be my parents. They're just not cool, you know, I wanna to be totally different than them. And then in my 30s, I realized I am very much a product of my upbringing and I like it. I like the ways that I've become my parents. I love who my parents were. And then there's a few other ways where I've learned what not to do from my parents. And we probably all have those places. A lot of people say that I look like my mom, and we've got a picture of her and I side by side to show you. I'm on the left, age 11. She's on the right, age 11. This was the 90s. I think I just discovered hairspray. It's very shiny <laughs> up top there. <laughs> but we look a lot alike. We have the same bone structure. We're like a quarter Native American. I love my mom. I think she's so cute. And then next picture, this is my daughter Sophie on the left and me on the right. So again, she looks like me. And when she turns 11, I can update that picture and show you the three generations. But we get so much from our family. It's not just the ways that we look. Our family shapes who we are. And 90% of who we are is actually developed before age five. And it sets us on a trajectory for the rest of our lives. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we can't change this trajectory. Jesus come on, makes all things new. So if you didn't have a great start, that's okay. There's good news today. But we, we say that to acknowledge so much of our family forms who we are. And we honor our parents. We honor our cultures, our history. We love that God, you know, I thank God that he put me in the time and the place and the house that he put me in. And God says to honor our parents. When we do that, we live a long life. And one of our core values here at Hope is honor. So we choose to honor our parents, we choose to honor all the places where they tried their best, come on. I love my family, they raised me to feel safe and secure and confident. They protected me from trauma. They provided for all of my needs. They always supported me, went to all of the school functions and all the things and encouraged me. And yet, they had some gaps because every family does. Our families do the best with what they have and if your family didn't do so great, they likely received whatever they did to you from the generation before them. Some things are passed through generations until someone decides to break the cycle through Jesus. And I am looking at a bunch of cycle breakers today. Come on. We're talking about rerouting our roots from our family of origin, which it could be your biological family, or maybe it's someone, a family you were adopted into, or friends who raised you, grandparents. We're talking about taking our roots out of those places and rerouting them in the family of God that we've been adopted into because of Jesus. Colossians 2, 7 says, let your roots grow down into him and draw up nourishment from him. Put your roots in Jesus. When we're rooted in him, 
Our lives produce fruit just because we're connected to him. We source from him. We draw from his supply. When we need joy, he gives us joy. When we need peace, he gives us peace and love and patience and gentleness. Everything we need is found in Jesus. He gives it to us and we can give it away. We produce fruit. Psalm 92, 13 to 14 says, Those who are planted in the house of the Lord planted, have their roots down in, shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. Come on, when you are planted in God's house, in his church, in his family, you have a fruitful, fresh, flourishing life. I love it. So in order to do that today, we want to go beneath the surface to our roots. We want to look at some old roots that aren't helping us and need to be pulled up. Roots like roles that we were given in our family, messages that we received, and ways that we believe, you know, that's just the way life is. Things that we believe aren't any different that have been consciously handed to us or maybe subconsciously interpreted by us. And we need to put down new roots in the truth of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. All those roots, we're pulling up the weeds and we're putting down roots in Christ in truth another translation I love this this is powerful it says we use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ come on our tools are ready at hand for clearing the ground of every obstruction and building lives of obedience into maturity I love God's word, and I love people who hope that we clap for God's word. Come on, it's so good. So we take our roots, and we reform them, we reshape them, we make them obedient to truths shaped by Jesus. We clear the, the ground of any roots that are tripping us up, and we put down new roots that help us to become mature and whole and fruitful. So you could have lots of different roots. I just want to give you a few examples. We have roots in the way we look at relationships. Maybe in your family, you were taught, trust no one. People will hurt you. Don't trust. But in Jesus, we want to reroute that and say, come on. You can trust people because of Jesus. And if you're hurt, Jesus is there to protect you. Come on, he'll heal you. Maybe you were taught in your family, don't be vulnerable. You know, you're like Elsa. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. Well, now they know. <laughs> or maybe in your family, you learned you have to date lots of people to be okay, and you can never be alone and single. Got to date, date, date. Or maybe you never saw a committed relationship, and you're afraid of any dating. You're like, no, thank you. The paradigms that I've seen are broken, so I don't even want to try. In Jesus, relationships make us stronger. They sharpen us. They make life enjoyable. They're a gift, and he shows us how to break old patterns, broken mindsets, and relate to people in healthy ways. Come on. Pulling up roots, putting down new ones. Roots of success. Maybe you learned that success is making tons of money, yeah, having all the nice stuff. Or you learned success is getting married. Like your aunt's like, why aren't you married yet? Maybe you learned success is having tons of babies, or success is being perfect and getting the best grades. But in Jesus, that's not what success is. Success isn't based on anything you do. It's based on who you are because you've trusted in Jesus and God loves you just the way you are. You don't have to earn his approval. 
That's success. Success is God is with you. We're going to see someone who is successful because of God today. Maybe for you, a root is in your family. Maybe your family taught you, you owe them for what they did for you, and you're just always indebted to them. Maybe you always had to keep up family appearances, had to make sure your family looked perfect. Or maybe you had to be the hero, the good kid. Maybe you were the scapegoat, you were the bad kid, or the funny kid, or the favorite. And the problem is that when we adopt these rules, we become those things, and we limit who we're really supposed to be. We limit who God made us to be. We want to step into the fullness of our identity. Or maybe you learned that family comes first before everything else. But when we love Jesus first, he helps make everything else better. Come on. He makes our families better. I remember being in high school and my husband and I were dating and we had just started going to church and, you know, figuring out this whole Jesus thing. And I'm like, I think I need to love Jesus more than you. Are you going to be okay with that? Because we can't date if I can't love him most. He's like, yeah, that's good. And we're still together (laughs) since 2001. (laughs) As Jesus loves us, we have love to give away. So when we put him first, he gives us what we need to have good relationships. Your kids can't do that, so don't make them first in your life. They don't want that pressure. Your spouse can't do that. Your parents can't do that. Your pastor can't do that. Your church can't do that. Only Jesus can. Colossians 1.17 says, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He holds all things together. From the tiniest atom to your entire life when you surrender it to him. At the beginning of this series, we looked at how God wants us to orient our whole life, our eating, sleeping, going to work, walking around life, around him. He wants us to trust him with all of it. He wants to be first because when he's first and he's at the center of everything, he holds your marriage together. He holds your finances together, your friendships, your work relationships, your career, your parents, your children. He holds everything together. And without him, things start to fall apart. Maybe another root that you have is emotions. Maybe you learned as a child, emotions are bad, or there are some emotions that are okay, but there are some that are not allowed. Maybe you learned your feelings don't actually matter. Or maybe you saw lots of explosions in your house, and you thought, wow, emotions are just really out there and explosive. Or maybe your parents were emotionally unavailable. In Jesus, Your emotions are a valuable part of your soul. Your soul is your mind, will, and emotions. And our emotions, we want to process them and not store them up and um, have them come out in unhealthy ways. And I love the Psalms because they're full of examples of David just processing emotions with God. You know, one minute he's happy, the next minute he's sad, he's feeling betrayed. Another time he's feeling like joyful and just like, God, I feel so safe and at rest in you. I learned as a child that emotions are too messy and it's better to avoid our feelings. And it's not anything that my parents said or did. It's really just, I have this um, core memory of when I was seven and someone in our family had passed away. And I think this is the first time I had um, seen death, which we're gonna talk about grief in two weeks. Uh, But this is the first time that I had experienced somebody passing away. And another family member was processing their grief and they were freaking out, and like it was crazy. And I remember being seven and being like, oh my gosh, 
I don't want any of that. So I just swung the pendulum the other way and was like, I'm not going to feel anything. And, you know, I don't want to be emotional. Emotions aren't good. But now as an adult, I'm pulling up that root and I'm saying, I want to embrace who Jesus made me to be. I don't want to live in anything in my life. When Kelly's getting baptized, I'm down there crying. I'm like, this is beautiful. I love it. Another route passed down through generations is how we perceive other cultures, whether we're closed-minded or we see people the way that God made us to be, that we are all one in Christ Jesus, that there's no male or female, there's no Jew or non-Jew. We are all the same. But for me, my grandma, she was racist. And I'm so sorry to say that, and I don't even want to admit that, but I'm being honest with you to say, no matter what your family was like, you can break this cycle. And I love that my parents broke this cycle. And they said, I'm rejecting that messed up, lying, broken paradigm, and we're adopting a new paradigm in Jesus. Because what happens in one generation repeats itself in the next, unless someone chooses to pull out the old root and put down a new one. But we are the cycle breakers. We don't blame our past. We break this cycle and we build a new future. Come on. And we have the freedom in Christ to say, I love this about my family and I want to keep this. Or I don't love this. I don't want to bring it into the next generation. It's not obedient to Jesus. It's a lie and I want to pull it out. We get to decide what we pass on to the next generation. And not just to our biological kids. Maybe you don't even have kids. We're passing it on to generations coming after us at work, in our neighborhoods, at church, and in society. People are waiting for us to share what we have. We get to be the bosses at work who create a healthy work environment where bosses before have not done so. We get to be the employees who build departments that are joy-filled where the other departments are depressed. We get to be the students who choose to be different than the generation before us. We get to choose to live a legacy in Jesus. One of the saddest verses in the Bible is Judges 2.10. It says, all the people of that day died. The children who came after them did not know the Lord. They did not know about the things he had done for Israel. Man, that's so sad. When you think about how short life is, they did not know about God. And the generation before them was a generation where God did so many miraculous things and they didn't know him because nobody passed it on to the next generation. In order for us to build a legacy, we we'll wanna learn from our past. Because the battles that we're facing, they're not all new. Sometimes they're battles that our parents or our grandparents or our great-grandparents, they dealt with those too. And on the flip side, our blessings are not new. God blesses us to the thousandth generation. Come on, just by being here today, you're creating a new legacy for generations to come in your family, come on. We see this with Abraham. He was called the friend of God. In Genesis 12, 1, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household in the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Come on, that's a promise that we have in Jesus, too. All God's promises are yes and amen to us. So Abraham believed God. God said, go and I'll bless you. So Abraham went and God credited it to him as righteousness. He said, okay, you believe me, 
let's have a relationship. And his legacy is that all people on earth are blessed through Abraham. Because he believed, generations are blessed. And Abraham also made some mistakes, like all of us. All have fallen short, all have missed the mark, all, you know, haven't measured up to God's perfect standard in our humanity. And that's okay, we're going to talk about it. Genesis 12.10 says, There was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Well, thanks, honey. When the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife. Yes. Then they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. Say you're my sister, so I'll be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. So Abram's like, hey, I'm kind of nervous. I know God already promised that I was going to be blessed. Let's just make a contingency plan in case like anybody thinks that you're my wife. And, you know, he was worried, and he came up with his own plan. And here's the thing. We'll look at it on the next slide. If I'm Sarah, I'm thinking he's complimenting me. And I'm going to say, no, honey, I'm not going to disobey God, and I'm not going to lie. But Sarah's like, you know what? I agree. Let's, let's come up with this great plan. So Pharaoh sees Sarah, and just like Abraham predicted, she's beautiful, and he's like, cool, be my wife. And he takes Sarah as his wife. But God comes, he intervenes, and he's like, uh, hey, Pharaoh, that lady's already married, so you're not going to want to be with her. And Pharaoh comes to Abram, he's like, what are you doing? He's like, take your wife and get out of here. So a little bit later, they're traveling again. And Abraham does the same thing with a different king. Here we go. Genesis 22, it says, There Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She's my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Once again, God comes to her aid. He comes to the king in a dream. He's like, Hey, she's married. Don't touch her. And so Abimelech goes over to Abraham. He's like, What did I do to you to deserve you lying to me like this? Genesis 20:11 says, Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they'll kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister. She's the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God made me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show me you love me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. So Abimelech's like, what are you doing? And instead of apologizing, Abraham justifies it. He's like, well, she's like my half-sister, it's only a half lie. She's my sister wife. It's like, no, Abraham, that's not how this works. So there's no such thing as a half lie. But Abraham, with this moment, he starts to establish a pattern of lying that lasts for generations. And just because he lied twice, he could have stopped that cycle, but he didn't choose to um, you know, go in a different way. He chose to keep justifying what he was doing. He could have said, I don't want to lie anymore. I'm sorry, Abimelech. I want to choose a new path. He didn't do that. So Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac um, grows up and re marries Rebekah. Genesis 26-7. Rebekah and Isaac are traveling around. It says, when the men of that place ask Isaac about his wife, Rebekah, he said, she's my sister. Here we go again, like father, like son, because he was afraid to say she's my wife. He thought, the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she's beautiful. Okay, so Abraham lies, she's my sister, actually she's my wife. Isaac lies, she's my sister, she's my wife. All right, Isaac and Rebekah, they have two sons, Esau and Jacob. 
Jacob's name means deceiver. So we've got grandpa lying, dad lying, and son is named deceiver. His whole identity is being a liar. So Jacob grows up and he decides to steal his brother Esau's identity. He goes into dad pretending to be Esau. Dad's kind of blind and old. He gives him the blessing. He steals from his brother. So Jacob ends up fleeing from his brother and they don't have a relationship for years. So then Jacob has 12 sons. One of the brothers is Judah, and we talked about him at the end of the Indominus series. He's the guy who lied to his daughter-in-law. Here's the lying thing again. She dressed up as a prostitute, and they had a baby together. It's like this whole crazy drama story. Ten of the brothers were jealous of their little brother, Joseph. So they'd tell their dad a lie, and they say, you know what? He's dead, when actually they sold him into slavery. So this is the third generation of now brothers fighting against brothers and being cut off. Abraham's blessing was passed to all these generations. They're blessed. They have lots of cattle and, you know, they're really prosperous in their nations. But his sin was passed on to them too. His lies, the family strife, sexual sin, unaddressed sin gets worse. We got to cut it off. We want to pull out the root and put down new roots so we can have new fruit. Come on. If you're stuck in a pattern, there's no condemnation for you. Surrender that thing to Jesus and live free. If we don't break this cycle, the next generation will be faced with our battles. If you're not going to break it for yourself, break the cycle for your kids. So there's Abraham, there's Isaac, and Jacob. They've got a pattern of lying. And then Joseph comes along, and he flips the script. And even though his brothers sold him into slavery, Joseph chose not to be a victim of them. Everywhere he went, he chose to make his own path and to be a person of character. He ends up being a slave, and his master's wife, she keeps trying to sleep with him. He has a chance for history to repeat itself, and he breaks the cycle. Genesis 39, Joseph was well-built and handsome. I love the Bible. It's so funny. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to my care. No one is greater than this ho- in this house than I am. My master's withheld nothing from me except for you, because you're his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? I love that Joseph was like, you're someone else's wife, and also I want to please God. Verse 10, though she spoke to Joseph day after day, wow, she was really after him, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants were inside. Sounds dangerous. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. I love that. He's like, I am breaking the cycle. Get away from me. And he runs. Come on. And he gets thrown into jail because she's like, well, he raped me. He was thrown into prison and God was with him. And I love this. Genesis 39, 21, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness, granted in favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. He was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Come on. Even when people lie about you, 
you don't have to worry because God is with you when you've trusted in Jesus. Come on. Like we talked about earlier, your success comes from him. God was with Joseph and he gave him success in whatever he did. And what the enemy meant for evil, God used for good. So eventually Joseph gets an opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. He goes to Pharaoh and he's like, I, I can't do it, but God can. And he's honest with Pharaoh. He doesn't lie about who he is. And he becomes second in command over all of Egypt under Pharaoh. Now fast forward a little bit. There's a famine in the land and his, his brothers come to Egypt looking for food. They have no idea that Joseph's there and he reveals himself as their brother. Now in this moment, he could have gotten revenge, but instead of repaying evil for evil, he says in Genesis 45, 5, and now do not be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. He saves their lives when he could have killed them. He could have at least thrown them into prison and you know, let them experience a little bit of what he had to endure. But he doesn't, he doesn't blame them. He looks at how God used everything for his good. He says, God, I trust your plan. Where Abraham had been worried about God's plan and made up some lies to protect himself, Joseph didn't do that. He broke the pattern of three generations of liars. He broke the pattern of three generations of people sleeping with people who weren't their wives. He broke the pattern of brothers being separated. Joseph pulled up his family roots and he rooted his life in God. And we have the opportunity today to do the same thing. We're the cycle breakers. The blood of Jesus covers us. The blood of Jesus, not our biological family, determines our identity. We're born separated from God, but at the cross, Jesus took on all of our sins. He took on all the places that we fell short, the things that kept us separated from God because he's so perfect and good. And Jesus gave the credit to us for all of his good works so that we could enjoy a relationship with God as our Father, the way he created us to. Ephesians 1.5 says, How blessed is God, and what a blessing he is. He's the Father of our Master, Jesus Christ, and he takes us to the high places of blessing in him. Long before he laid down the earth's foundations, he had us in mind. Isn't that crazy? He was thinking of us before he made the world. He'd settled on us as the focus of his love. Yeah, we're the object of his affection. To be made holy and whole by his love, as you receive his love, he transforms you from the inside out. He makes you whole. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. There it is. We're adopted into his family. And what a pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son. God created the world and he decided before that that he would love us, that we would be made whole and holy by his love no matter what we did, no matter how far we wandered, that we would be adopted into his family through the blood of Jesus not just followers of Jesus or students of Jesus or disciples of Jesus, brothers and sisters of Jesus, sons 
and daughters of God. We're loved, we're secure, and we're free in God's family when we believe in Jesus. Come on, he's our father and all he wants to do is love us.